All right, take your Bible this morning, turn to the book of Acts. First passage we'll look at is in Acts 25, so you can go ahead and flip over there. We'll get to it in a moment. Have you ever asked the question, you know, if God is good, then why does He allow His children to face trials? If God is really good, why does He allow His children to go through trials? Well, two weeks ago, we began looking at Paul's trials that he faced here at the end of the book of Acts. And we looked at God's perspective in our trials. Last week, we looked at the enemy's perspective on our trials. But today, I want us to focus on what our perspective should be in the trials that we face. Maybe you've asked the question, Why me, Lord? Why me? Well, why would you allow me to face trials? I think there's a lot we can learn from these, this portion of Scripture today, and we're going to look at several chapters or portions of chapters here at the end of Acts as we look together at Paul's trials. And I want you to see these reasons and, and what God is doing and what our perspective ought to be in the trials that we face. Look at Acts chapter 25. And I want you to see, first of all, verses 7 and 8. Acts 25, verses 7 and 8. The Bible says, And when he was come, this is Paul, when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul. They made lots of accusations, but the rest of the verse says, which they could not prove. Ever been accused of something that you didn't do? Well, that's what Paul was facing. His trial was in large part because he was accused of something that he hadn't even done. The Bible says in verse 8, While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. Paul says, I've done nothing wrong. As we look at our perspective in trials, I want us to ask this question first. What is the reason for your trials? What is the reason for the trials that you face? Every person at one stage or another in their life faces trial. What is the reason for your trials? Well, I think we can see from these two verses we just read about Paul's life, the truth that trials don't always mean that you're doing wrong. Paul did not do wrong in this situation, and yet he was facing a trial. It's easy. I know the first time you go through something hard, like, okay, what did I do wrong? How, how can I avoid that? But some trials are not to be avoided by us, and they're through no fault of our own. Look, if you will, over to chapter 26 of Acts. Acts 26, verse 31 and 32. The Bible says, And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves. This is Agrippa and Festus, these two men that were involved in uh, Paul's trial. And they said, This man doeth nothing worthy of death nor of bonds. Then said Agrippa to Festus, 
This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. So even two of the men who were involved in his trial, who both had the power to set him free, looked at each other and said, he hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything deserving of death or even of bonds. He shouldn't even be put in chains. Paul's trials were not because he had done something wrong. Rather, I, can, I think we can see from Paul's example that trials are often the result of others' wrongdoing. I mean, think about it. You could be driving down the road, minding your own business, in your lane, under the speed limit, and someone else could come out of the blue and hit you. Doesn't mean you did anything wrong. In fact, it could be that it's somebody else doing wrong that's caused your trial that you're facing. Paul, we saw, is in prison because the religious leaders of his day disagreed with him. Just because religious people disagreed with him, he had a trial. Paul was sent to Felix because the people in Jerusalem were trying to kill him. If you want to see that quickly, look back at chapter 23, verse 12. The Bible says, And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed. Verse 13, There were more than 40 which, were made this, which had made this conspiracy, and they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We bound ourselves under a great curse, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Man, that's tough to be Paul. You got 40 people that, cur- that, that promise each other, we're not going to eat or drink till we kill this guy. Wouldn't you love to know that there were 40 people today that had made a promise that they were not going to eat until they killed you? Why is he facing this trouble? It's not through his own wrongdoing. It's through the wrongdoing of others. And then later, Paul is, of course, sent to Felix because it was dangerous for him to stay in Jerusalem. The Bible says down in verse 24, and he wrote, this is the, the, uh, the leader of the, the, the centurion there. He wrote a letter after this manner, and he said, Claudius Lysias, under the most excellent governor, Felix, sendeth greeting. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. I like how this guy writes his letter. He's clearly self-promoting here. Look at me. If I hadn't been there with my army, and if I hadn't figured out that he was a Roman, by the way, if you read the passage, it was Paul that told him that he was a Roman. It wasn't that he discovered. In fact, he accused Paul of being the Egyptian that wanted to cause insurrection. But, of course, taking the opportunity to try to gain favor for himself, he writes this letter and he says, I perceived, verse 29, to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or bonds. That's not even true. But he says, well, I already know this man's innocent, but I'm going to send him to you. What a great guy this is. Now, he says, when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as was commanded them, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris on the morrow. They left the horsemen, go with them, returned to the castle, who when they came to Caesarea, delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. So Paul is going through all of this, through the sin of the religious leaders, through the Romans' unwillingness 
to actually deal in truth. Instead, they wanted to just please everybody, these lower Roman leaders. Later, we read that Paul was kept by Felix because Felix wanted a bribe and because Felix didn't want to upset the Jews. Look at the end of chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse 24, it says, And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith of Christ, in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Look at verse 26. He hoped also that money should be given him of Paul, that he might loose him, wherefore he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. Verse 27, but after two years, Portius Festus came into Felix's room and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. You see the story? He, he's in bonds, he's in prison, and he did nothing wrong. Have you ever faced a situation in life where you're going through a difficulty and you look around and you say, but this is not my fault. I didn't do anything to deserve this. It's really important that we have the right perspective on trials because sometimes we get the false idea that all of life should just be good. And wait a minute, I come to church and I'm trying to follow what the Bible says and I even dressed up and put on my flowered tie for Mother's Day. So it should be really good, right? Sometimes the struggle that you face in life is through no fault of your own. Now, I'm not negating the fact that people do wrong and face punishment for their wrongdoing. We understand that to be true. But in this situation, Paul's trial was through no fault of his own. It was through the political ambition of others. It was because of the jealousy of the religious leaders who wanted people to follow them instead of wanting people to follow God. Paul had many people who desired to kill him. You read in another instance in chapter 25, verses 2 through 4, another group of people got together to try to kill Paul. It says, Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him and desired a favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. Did you notice who was trying to kill Paul? It's the high priest and the chief of the Jews. These so-called Pharisees, these people who supposedly were keeping the law perfectly, were trying to murder somebody else. Wait a minute, doesn't the sixth commandment say, thou shalt not kill? Well, see, when it's for your own purposes, now all of a sudden the law doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want because... When you put yourself equal with God, you get to make all those decisions for yourself. My friends, we are not in the position of God. It's God who gives life and it's God who takes life. For us to try to take a life as these people are trying to take Paul's life is sin because we're putting ourselves in the position of God. Paul was accused of many different things, but they were never proven. Paul later appealed to Caesar because Festus was more interested in political games than in doing the right thing. So remember, uh, Felix wanted to show the Jews a pleasure, verse 27 of chapter 24. Look over at chapter 25 and verse 9. It says, but Festus, 
willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? He was stuck in a corrupt system of people trying to please other people and use their authority and their influence to curry favor for themselves rather than people who were willing to behave and do the right thing and to stand upon truth. And here's Paul stuck in the middle of this. Why me, Lord? I'm just trying to serve you. I'm stuck in a corrupt system with corrupt people who are all in it for themselves. And nobody seems to care about truth. Nobody seems to care about me. I'm thankful that was not Paul's attitude. But it could have been. In fact, we probably might struggle with a similar attitude if we were facing the trials that Paul was facing. Trials don't mean that you're doing wrong. They are often the result of others' wrongdoing. I want to speak to the believers here this morning, those who call themselves Christians. Did you know that trials are promised to those who do the right thing? The Apostle Paul wrote this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 and 13. He says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Every person who exercises understands that the trial that your body must face in order to grow stronger. There's no easy way to grow in physical strength. I mean, some of you say, well, my table muscle's growing. That still took effort. There's not an easy way to grow in spiritual strength either. Every person who has a job understands that doing the right thing is sometimes the hard thing to do. I mean, it's been put in that little four-word motto that's sometimes emblazoned on T-shirts. No pain, no gain, right? Trials are promised to those who do the right thing. The hard way is often the right way. And if we live life just trying to avoid difficulty because we don't want to have to face trial, we'll find ourselves often in the wrong place. Every mother here this morning has gone through tremendous trial to be able to have a child. But they do it because there's something valuable there. There's a reward, if you will. There's the blessing of having a child. In the scripture, we're looking at the example of Paul. You go to the Old Testament, and there are many examples there as well. But think of the example of Job, a man who the Bible says did right. He stayed away from evil, and yet he lost everything that he had. Why me, Lord? Why me? So as we think about the reason for our trials, understand, it may not be because you've done wrong. It may be because others are doing wrong. But it also should not surprise you any more than a mother who is about to give birth should be surprised that that's a painful process. Or it shouldn't surprise you that if you're going to go out and excel athletically that you're going to have to train and work hard. It shouldn't surprise you that to do the right thing 
is often hard. So, I want you to look with me back at these chapters to see what our message should be. What is your message during trials? What do you live by? What, how do you get through it? What was Paul's message during these trials? Well, I want you to look, and this is right at the beginning of this first trial, chapter 23 and verse 1, Paul says, And earnestly beholding the counsel, Paul said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. One of the things that really grabbed my attention as I began to study through these chapters a, a while back, it's been a couple months ago as I was working through this and planning what the Lord would have us to do here, one of the things that struck me is Paul was on trial four different times. But each time he was on trial, his message stayed the same. It was consistent. It didn't matter who Paul stood in front of. It didn't matter what they said against him. Paul's message was always the same. It was always the same. He didn't try to change his story just to please the people he was standing in front of. He didn't try to start complaining about different things based on who he was talking to. His message stayed the same. What is our message? What is your message during trials? I would say it this way. A, first of all, requires a clean conscience. Paul, as he stayed consistent, as he gave this message that never changed, he demonstrated that he had a clean conscience. What does it mean to have a clean conscience? It means that when you stand up and say something, really inside you're not thinking something else. It means that when you represent yourself to be who you say you are, that you're not actually in reality somebody very different on the inside. It means that when you stand up and say, I'm right before God and man, that if we really knew what was going on on the inside, we wouldn't say, well, they're not really right with God and and that's something that I may not be able to tell about you. But you know if you have a clean conscience. You know if your conscience is right before God. That's something between you and God. Now, the Bible does speak a lot about the conscience. And it says that we need to be careful that we don't sear our consciences like a hot iron on something that, that burns it. And how does that happen? Well, it means going against what we know to be right over and over and over again. And if you do that long enough and often enough, eventually you lose sensitivity to what is right and what is wrong. But Paul here, he said, I have a clean conscience before God. I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Look over at chapter 24 and verse 16. Paul says this, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Let me see if I can help you understand the significance of this. If you're going through a trial, a really hard time, then you need to know in your heart of hearts you need to be absolutely convinced that you are standing in the right place and doing the right thing. Otherwise, the trial is kind of worthless, right? Like, who wants to go through pain just to go through pain? Well, somebody who has mental problems, right? 
We don't choose to go through pain just because we like painful things. No, we choose to go through pain because we believe it's the right thing to do because of the outcome, because of the direction that we're trying to go and what we're trying to accomplish. It's Mother's Day. I don't think there'd be a single mother in here today. Yeah, I'd love to go through labor, but not have a child. No, who, who would want to do that? No, nobody would choose to do that on their own. You have to have a clear conscience. A clear conscience towards God and towards men. Paul says, I have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. As you live your Christian life, as you live your life period, whatever it is, if you have false motives, if you have a sort of a secondary purpose that you're not really telling any, anybody else about. You may be looking like you're doing this, but really you're out for yourself. It doesn't give you confidence to go through hard times or do it. You don't have a clear conscience. I think of it this way. If you're not convinced that what you're doing is the right thing, not right before God and before men. But we're talking about our message during trials. What should it be? Well, to have this clear message, we need to have a clean conscience. But I would say, secondly, a clear message also requires consistent communication. It's consistent. Paul, Acts 23, verse 6, it says, But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee of the dead. I am called in question. He communicated. He said, I'm here because of the question about the hope and resurrection of the dead. Look at chapter 24, verse 21. Paul said, except it be for this one voice, I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. Look at verse number, or chapter 24, verses 24 and 25. We looked at this earlier. It says that Felix came with his wife Drusilla. She was a Jewish. He sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. As he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Look at chapter 26 and verse 6. Paul says, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. What was this promise that God would send His Son, Jesus Christ, that there would be a Messiah who would come and save them from their sins, that He would rise again from the dead? Look down at verse 18. I'm sorry, look down at verses 21 to 23 of Acts 26. The Bible says, For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple, went about to kill me. Why did they want to kill Him? Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue to this day, witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. Verse 23, that Christ should suffer and that He should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Why am I reading all these verses? 
Because I want you to see Paul's message was consistent. In his trial, he had a consistent message. What was his consistent message? That Jesus Christ came and that he died for our sins and that he rose again the third day. And that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and prophets of the one who would come. Paul's message was consistent. Paul said it this way over in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was his consistent message. So why does your message require a clean conscience and consistency in communication? Why? Because trials cause doubt. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you've never been through a trial. Anytime you go through a trial in your life, it, it always tends to bring up questions of doubt, things that you thought you were confident on. You think, mm, maybe I'm not so sure about this anymore. Trials cause doubt. Struggle makes you want to quit. Is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? It's not worth the struggle if you're a fake. It's not worth the struggle if your faith is not real. If you don't have a message that's consistent, then you're suffering for no reason. You think about a soldier out on the battlefield, if he's taken captive by the enemy, why does he not just switch sides and join the enemy? Well, if he believes in his cause of what he's fighting for, then, then he stays a prisoner. He refuses to give away the secrets. Why? Because he believes in the cause that he's fighting for. If he doesn't, then, well, I'll fight for this side. And I'll switch to that side. How crazy would it be if, you know, we put together a basketball team and somebody went down, they scored on this end, and then they went down and scored on the other end. You say, what's wrong with this guy? Doesn't he understand? You, you don't score for both teams. I remember in JV basketball, a kid grabbed the ball and he forgot which end of the court he was on and threw it up and scored for the wrong team. Maybe you've seen that. And the other team's like, boy, he's the best player on our team, right? <laughs> no, that, that wouldn't make any sense. I remember growing up playing soccer, and we had a guy on our team. In one game, I think he scored two goals for the other team. It, it was really rough. The ball just kept ricocheting off of him and going in the goal. We're like, get him away from the goal. Put, put him somewhere far away. We don't want him scoring goals for the other team. We understand it in that sense. And that's why it's worth going through the struggle if we know that our message is worth sharing. If we know that we have something consistent that we ought to share. Why is the message that Paul consistently shared worth facing struggle and trials for? Think about it. All he had to do was give up his message. All he had to do was give up the truth and Paul could have been set free. And he could have just enjoyed life, right? He wouldn't have to worry about sitting on trial. He wouldn't have to worry about being in prison. He wouldn't have to worry about people trying to kill him. 
And if you know the story of Paul, you know he used to try to kill people. He could go back to killing people. Have you ever thought about that? Life was a lot easier for Paul when he was killing people. That's kind of a weird thing to think about. But as far as physical comfort, he had more physical comfort when he was killing Christians than when, be, when he became a Christian himself. Well, that just seems totally backward, doesn't it? So why do we wonder when we face trial? Think about this. Paul, Paul spoke about why this message was so important. And I think it's summed up in the message that Jesus Christ gave to Paul when he was on the road to Damascus. Paul repeats it in Acts 26 and verse 18. This was his purpose. This was his message. This was what he was here to do. He said to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith which is, that is in me. The value of this message is so great that it is worth any price to get it out to as many people as possible. What's the message? Well, the message is this, that this world is living in darkness. Spiritual darkness. That darkness comes because of our own sinful choices. Everybody's made them. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Jews had made sinful choices. Paul was a Jew. The Gentiles made sinful choices. Not okay. A lot of people like to think, well, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay doing things my way. Before God, you're not okay. You're in darkness. You may be okay financially. You may be okay physically. Your family might be okay. Your job situation might be okay. A lot of things about your life may be okay. But spiritually, you're in darkness. And when Paul realized that truth, that this world was in darkness, including himself, all of his energy putting into his religious activity, putting into trying to do everything just a certain way, he realized even he, Paul the Pharisee, was not okay. He was in darkness. And he understood that there was light, and that light only comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He's the light of the world. Jesus said of himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He's the life. He's the light. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the bread. He's the good shepherd. He's the hope for America, and he's the hope for this world. Jesus Christ is the only way. And this world is in darkness. In fact, he describes this darkness as being that which is under the power of Satan. That's what he says in Acts 26, verse 18. And from the power of Satan. Satan's not just some figment of your imagination. He's not just somebody that shows up in your bad dreams. 
He's not just somebody that they put in scary movies and runs around with a pitchfork and has horns and and a spiky tail. No, he's real and he's powerful. We looked at him last week and what the Bible has to say about him. He's powerful and he works through trickery. He works through distraction. He works by making things look to be good that are really bad. He draws people in until one day their life is over and all of a sudden they wake up and say, what happened? Where am I? How did this happen to me? I think there will be lots of people with good intentions who spend eternity separated from God in hell because they never stopped long enough to consider the power of Satan and the consequences of sin. Paul said here, and from, I'm sorry, the Lord said to Paul, and from the power of Satan unto God. There is only one power in this world that is greater than the power of Satan, and that's the power of God. And the power of God is most evident through the power of the gospel to take people who are spiritually dead, spiritually in darkness, spiritually separated from God in their sins, on their way to an eternity in hell, and He takes them and He turns them towards God. He gives them life, not just life here, but eternal life. That's the message of the gospel, and that's a message worth suffering for. It's a message worth facing trials for. It's a message worth going through anything that God might allow in our life because people need the Lord. They're in darkness, they're under the power of Satan, and there's only one power that can set them free. It's not through their own strength. It's not just trying harder, trying to be better. Well, just get them to church. They'll be okay. Dress them up, clean them up, educate them, give them money, feed them. All those things are wonderful things, but it won't change their life for eternity. There's only one hope, and that hope is Jesus. Jesus is the hope. Paul had a clean conscience, but he also had a clear and consistent message. As I meditated on all of these trials that Paul got through, I thought, why would he go through all of this? But as I came to that verse, it's like the light came on. This is why. This is why. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. And then he says this, that they may receive Forgiveness of sins. We live in a world today that's really focused on people trying to figure out how to forgive themselves. I understand what they're saying. You want to move past something difficult or something hard in your life. But forgiving yourself is not enough. It's not enough because you've done more than offend yourself. You've broken the law of a holy God. He's holy. He's righteous. He's your creator. But, he says, I will offer you forgiveness. Do you have to receive it? 
He's already done the work. But you have to receive what he's already done for you. Now, I know we're talking about persecution and trials this morning, but I want you to understand this is why Paul went through all this. It's because this message is so important for everyone. And I don't want to move ahead this morning without saying this. If you're here this morning and you are in darkness, you may have a lot of things going okay, that's fine. But spiritually speaking, you know you do not have a personal relationship with God. You, you've never received the forgiveness of sins. God offers that to you today as well. The Bible says it very simply. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You need that gift because without it, what you deserve is death. What I deserve too. I'm standing up here preaching it this morning, but you know what I deserve? Death. Being a preacher doesn't make you not deserve death. Being a good mom doesn't make you not deserve death. You say, whoa, that, that sounds... When you look in the mirror and look at your own sin before a holy God, that's all we deserve. But he offers forgiveness and he says, an inheritance. And inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. He wants to give you forgiveness and he wants you to give an inheritance. Jesus not too long before he left his disciples, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I heard somebody say it this way a while back. God created all the universe and everything we see with his spoken word in six days. Christ has been preparing a place for, the, for us for the last 2,000 years. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? I can't. It's, it's far beyond what our minds can comprehend. See, if there was any other message or any inconsistency in Paul's life or any inconsistency in the message or in the hope and the truth, it would be completely worthless, all of the suffering that Paul went through. But when you understand what the hope is and what the message is, you see, this is why, this is why, because God is offering forgiveness. He's offering eternal life. And eternal life is so much more valuable than this present life. Because this present life will end. The Bible says it this way, it is appointed unto man once to die. You and I will die. Some sooner than others. But we'll all face it. But God offers eternal life. This life is not all that there is. Receive His forgiveness. Call out to Him. Confess your sin. Trust in Him today and He'll forgive you. What's the reason for your trials? We don't always know the reason. But we do know that trials are promised to those that do the right thing. What's our message during trials? It's the message of the gospel. And when God allows difficulty in your life, whether or not you get thrown in prison, I hope you don't. I hope I don't. I don't really want that to happen. But it happened to Paul. But if you will take every struggle that you face and say, all right, Lord, how do I continue to serve you, follow you? Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? Lord, are you doing something in me 
or through me by allowing this difficulty in my life. When God's big enough, He's always doing something in us and through us if we'll allow Him to do it. So I want to finish this morning by asking this question, what is your hope through trials? What's your hope? What's your hope? We understand the hope of the gospel. That's absolutely clear. Of the eternal life that Jesus Christ gives to us. But what's the hope? Well, I think one that we can see very clearly through Paul's own words is that God works through trials to bring growth. That's part of the hope. He uses those trials to bring growth. Paul said it this way in Romans 5, 3 and 4, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience I've been here before. God's helped me before, so I have hope He'll help me again. But if you've never been through something difficult, the first time you feel, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how this is going to work out. It works hope. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul, are you crazy? You just called your affliction light. When I read the book of Acts, it doesn't sound light. We haven't even gotten to... Just hang on for the next few weeks. Paul's going to get put on a ship and he's going to be hauled off to Rome. He's going to be shipwrecked. He's going to get bit by a snake. He's going to go through all kinds of things. And the end of of it all, at some point, he lost his life for Christ. And he just said, no, that's light affliction. Well, he can only say that because he's comparing it to something else. It's as if there was this big balance scale, right? An imaginary balance scale. And over on this side of the scale, he put all the affliction, all the suffering, all the struggle, all the difficulty that he ever went through. And then on this other side, he put the eternal weight of glory. That's God's work. That's God's purpose. That's God's reward. And when he let go of the balance scale, it just crashed over here on the side of the eternal weight of glory because this was just light affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. God works through trials to bring growth. Christ is preparing a place that will make any trial of this life seem insignificant. What's your hope? Your hope is that God is working to grow you. Your hope is that Christ is preparing a place for you. Romans 8 verse 18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What's your hope in trials? Well, God is also preparing you to help others through their trials. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4, Who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble 
by the comfort wherewith we ourselves Amen. are comforted Amen. of God. He uses the word comfort a whole lot there. What's he saying? Well, when you've received comfort, having gone through something difficult in your own life, you're then able to share that comfort with somebody else and say, I know what you're going through is hard. I've been there. But here's what God did for me. And let me show you how you can have that same kind of comfort in your life. We, we do that all the time, don't we? I mean, people say this, I just like people that can relate to me. What do they mean by that? Somebody that's been through similar things that you have, right? It's hard to relate to somebody that you haven't experienced what they've experienced. That's why moms like to hang out with other moms, right? Because they're going through similar things. It's why kids like to hang out with other kids and teens like to hang out with other teens because they can relate to each other. I mean, every teenager knows the feeling, and all of us at one point in time, we're in that age group too. Boy, my parents just don't understand me at all. They can't relate to me. They don't understand. They haven't been through what I'm going through. And all the parents are like, yes, we, we can relate. We, we know. We understand. Right? Sometimes we struggle to see how others can relate to us. But the Bible says the struggle that God allows in our life as, he, as we get comfort, as we get help, then we can take that and say, let me encourage you. That's part of our hope and struggle. You know, I think it's worth it for a parent to have to struggle in order to be able to help their kids. I mean, what parent wouldn't say, nope, I don't want to suffer anything for my kids. They can just figure it out on their own. Say, so you're a terrible parent, right? No. It's worth it, though, as you receive that comfort, then you're helping somebody else through it. There's so many more reasons. Let me just give you one more. One more reason for hope in trial is that God's grace is sufficient for every trial. Second Corinthians 12, 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee. Sufficient means enough, right? Means enough. Often we might treat God's grace like we want to treat our kitchen cabinet at home. We want it to just open up and it just always be full of food. But you know, if you open up your cabinet and there's enough for what you need right then, that's enough. In fact, if you had too much, what would probably happen? Some would go to waste. Some would rot. Some would go bad. Aren't you glad that at home right now, you don't have 50 gallons of milk? What would I do with all this milk? It's going to go bad. We have a friend, he loved to grow tomatoes. He used to grow thousands of tomatoes every year. And he'd bring them to church, he'd take them to work, he'd just give away tomatoes, give away tomatoes, give away tomatoes, because he said, I don't know what I'm going to do with all these tomatoes. It's too many for him to use it all himself. God's grace is abundant. And it's so much that... He gives it to you, He gives it to me, He gives it to all those who need it. But the way God hands out grace, He hands it out enough at a time. It's, it's sufficient. It's sufficient. You see, you may look at somebody go through a really hard thing in their life, a trial, and you say, how did they do it? Well, I'll let you in on a secret. God actually gave them more grace 
than he's given to you at this moment because he gave them enough for what they're going through. But at the same time, God's given you enough for what you're going through. Sometimes people are afraid to take the next step forward of faith because they look at somebody else and they say, well, clearly they're a way better person than me because I could never do what they're doing. But if you sat down and talked to them, you'd find out, hey, I think the same thing. I could never do this. But I took this one step and God comforted me. He gave me grace to help me in this situation. And that's why I'm over here doing this now because God's grace is still sufficient for this. I know I'm talking about moms today. It's Mother's Day. But what couple, as they first decide to have children, is like, oh man, having this child is going to be a big thing. And they have their first child. Man, the parties, now you've got to have your gender reveal. You've got to have all this event, events just going on for weeks and weeks and months and all this time. And then little baby is here, and it's awesome. It's exciting. This baby, you see, you can always tell first-time parents because they're carrying like 50,000 pounds of stuff around with them everywhere they go. They, they have their first child, and they buy a minivan just to haul all the stuff to take care of this one tiny creature. Isn't it interesting, though? Parents will do that when they have their first child, but then they can have child two, three, four, and they're still in the same minivan. It's not like they bought four minivans for four kids, no. Because they begin to learn. Man, this was a lot. You also can tell mothers who've been mothers longer, their diaper bags get smaller. Have you ever noticed that? The more kids they have, the smaller the diaper bag gets, and they're like, Man, that first-time mom, she's got 14 diapers and six packs of wipes, and, man, she's ready for anything that happens at any time. It's like the longer they go, they're like, oh, I'll just ask my friend. Or, you know, we're over at their house. Her kids have, you know, <laughs> whatever. You know, you show up with, like, all extra changes of clothes. And now when people come into our house, we're like, oh, we got lots of clothes. Here, we'll send you home an extra pair of shorts or T-shirt, whatever we do, right? Because you get used to it. What am I talking about? It's taking the comfort that you've received and then being able to share that with somebody else. You know how it is when you're getting ready to have your first child. Like, I don't know how we're going to afford this. Be so much money. And then you look at people with four kids or ten kids. Or, and you're like, how do they afford it? My dad used to say, can you just throw another potato in the pot? It's a little more soup. You look at your budget, there's never enough room there. And yet, somehow, we're all still sitting here this morning, fed, some too much, clothed. Better move on. That's another sermon for another day, I know. But we're, we're okay because God's grace is sufficient. It's sufficient. But until you face the trial, you won't get to experience his all-sufficient grace for that. So don't live your life in fear of what could happen. Know that if God allows it, he'll give you the grace to sustain you through it. That's your hope in trial. But that takes faith, doesn't it? My grace is sufficient for thee. He says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And it seems as if Paul, as he'd walked in that comfort, as he'd walked in that grace, as he'd experienced God's provision for him, he was able to say this, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities 
that the power of God may rest upon me. And when I read that, I'm like, Paul, you're at a whole nother level of walking by faith. Because he's saying, boy, it almost gets me excited when I see my weakness. It gets me excited about struggle because I know I'm going to get to experience God's grace in an ever-changing, ever-growing, ever-more-sufficient way than I've experienced it up till now. Relate one more child-rearing story to you. We A few years ago, when Caden was brand new, he was maybe 18 months old, we were sitting with some of our friends and they had four kids at the time. Caden's our fifth. And we're sitting there in the living room talking. The kids are playing. All of a sudden, in comes walking Caden. He's carrying his diaper in one hand, a clean diaper and a clean set of wipes. He doesn't even really talk a whole lot yet at this point, but he just kind of lays him on Shandy's lap. And Shandy goes, oh, and checks. Sure enough, he needed to be changed. And she took him off chain. And that other couple just sit there, sat there and stared at us. And he said, how did you train him to do that? I said, well, it's a fifth child. you got to have a fifth to know what this is like. I said, our first four didn't do it. It took the fifth to be able to figure this out. Now, your kid, I know, someone said, well, Pastor, mine did it with the first. Great. I'm happy for you. But, you know, God gives enough grace sufficient (laughs) for what you're facing at that time. So I want to encourage you not that... somebody's going to go home today, pastor just preached on the trials of kids. No, that's not what the message is about this morning. Pastor talked about changing diapers. No. We're talking about our perspective in trials. I want you to know there's hope. But you can't do this on your own. You can't live this life on your own. You're, You're not okay. You need Jesus. There was a lady that lived the second half of the 1800s, and she was very well known in her day, and still is well known by many today. Her name was Fanny Crosby. She lived to be 95 years old. And during her lifetime, she wrote over 8,000 hymns. Just do the math on that about how much she was writing all the time. I mean, she's churning these, these hymns out. Had to have been multiple a week to get 8,000 done. Think of it. That's nearly 100 hymns every year for 80 years. Her output would fill... Eight large volumes of a thousand hymns each. Typical hymnal of church is, you know, four, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred songs. When she was eight years old, she wrote this poem about her blindness. Oh, yeah, by the way, she was blind and wrote 8,000 hymns. And she was blind, you know this, she wasn't born blind. A doctor prescribed the wrong kind of medication for an eye infection that she had, and it took her sight. A trial through no fault of her own, through the wrongdoing of others. But yet at eight years old, she wrote this, Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. 
how many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. A few years before she died, she wrote this beautiful song. It's still sung by many today. She wrote, Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more, as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king. Think about this. This is a blind woman who's lived her whole life like this. She writes the chorus, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story Saved by grace, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. The next verse said, Someday my earthly house will fall, and I cannot tell how soon will be, but this I know, my all in all has now a place in heaven for me. And the last verse said, Someday, till then, I'll watch and wait. My lamp all trimmed and burning bright that when my Savior opens the gate, my soul to Him may take its flight. And I shall see Him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. And I shall see Him face to face, and tell the story saved by grace. That's a lady who lived with hope. She lived with hope, and that hope gave her purpose to be able to face the trial of blindness that never went away. But instead of just looking at it as a trial, she looked at it as an opportunity, an opportunity to bring glory to God and to serve Him with her life. Paul faced great trials, but through it all, God fulfilled His purpose in him and through him. What does God want to teach you through what you're going through? What does God want to do through you as you faithfully serve Him? I hope you know Him today. I hope you're walking with Him. Let's pray, Lord. We love you and we thank you for this day.